The roadrunner and coyote could best be described as not how to catch a roadrunner, but how not to catch a roadrunner. Comedy is as much what you don't do as what you do do. You must narrow yourself, as in any other form. We all set our discipline. Mondrian said his discipline. Probably the greatest animator and one of the greatest storytellers of all time. The nine rules of the roadrunner are just establishing the fact that there are certain rules that you just have to adhere to. Rule number one, the roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep beep. Rule number two, no outside force can harm the coyote. Only his own ineptitude for the failure of the acne products. Rule number three, the coyote could stop any time if it were not a fanatic. Rule number four, no dialogue ever except beep beep. Rule number five, the roadrunner must stay on the road, otherwise logically he would not be called roadrunner. Rule number six, all action must be confined to the natural environment of the two characters, the Southwest American Desert. Number seven, all materials, tools, weapons, or mechanical conveniences must be obtained from the Acme Corporation. Rule number eight, whenever possible, make gravity the coyote's greatest enemy. Rule number nine, the coyote is always more humiliated than harmed by his failures. Okay, beaming to you from Acme Broadcast Headquarters in Venice Beach, California. The Acme Writing Academy is on the air. This is Rick Crisman along with today's panel of rule makers and rule breakers. Mike Magnuson, Bob Clark, Jim Frank, and Marcello Vasquez. Welcoming you to tonight's investigation of Chuck Jones and his nine rules of the Roadrunner. So Mike, what's up with this? This is Chuck Jones, the, the probably the greatest animator and one of the greatest storytellers of all times. And what he was trying to do was put something together that was consistent shall we say consistent is that, is that a word we can use absolutely what, what, what do you think martell consistency is annoys me <laughs> <laughs> no consistency has to do with production i think regularity is a better word oh man see like 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 i live in, in near green bay wisconsin and the coach mike mccarthy always the, the green bay packers Always talks about I really like regularity in our practices. You know oh, what does that mean? It's, the whole team out there and takes it's all shit. about bowel movement. Exactly. <laughs> I know. It's all like we're talking about art here. Do we want to have regularity in our art? That's when, when I hear the word consistency it inspires me to say the word regularity. You know the, the nine rules of the Roadrunner, just establishing a fact that there are certain rules that you just have to adhere to, and not only in the the Roadrunner series, but in, uh, you know, what we're talking about writing. There are certain things that you just can't fucking do. And I think that's what that what that's being illustrated by uh, by these nine nine rules of the Roadrunner. Well, I, th- I think uh, you, you got two things that work here. First of all, these these rules, they're not they don't apply to TV writing in general. They just apply to this particular show. It's it's what makes it this show as opposed to another show. And it goes back to what Mike was saying, the continuity. Because right, when, you tune is, in, when, you, when you watch a Roadrunner right. cartoon, you know what to expect. Exactly. You know, Bugs Bunny isn't going to show up. Well, I think you expect certain things in a story. And usually in good writing, the main character is usually his own worst enemy. I mean, the stock characters around him may affect him. But the person who really hurts himself or herself is the main character, in this case, the coyote. That's mm-hmm. great. That pertains to rule number three, that the coyote could stop at any time if he were not well, I was, a fanatic. I was thinking about rule number one. I mean, the Roadrunner is a stock character. It's not really the, 
The coyote is his own worst enemy. But there's the really cool toys he gets from Acme, I have to say, right? The detonation box, the TNT, the the vehicles he uses to try and run the Roadrunner down cans. The rocket, the rocket shoes are some of my favorite. Right, and the spring-loaded cantaloupe, uh, can, not cantaloupe. The spring-loaded cantaloupe. Actually, catapult. The interesting thing is most of the Acme products work better than, you know, one would expect. <laughs> they work better than they should. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the problem is the coyote has to work them. <laughs> right. But I mean, like the glue, right? When he's, you know, tries to... You know, get his hand off the the boomerang. You know, and he gets attached oh, to it because he yes. gets glued to it. Right. Yes, and the the glue's too good. Now, I'd like to say that right. Acme products tend to be excellent. Well, we know that <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm trying to do here without being obvious. Just product placement. <laughs> so, uh, you know what? One thing that makes me just to get it back on a literary level is, is it makes me uh, think about the old trope about making the contract with the reader that right if you're writing a story right at the beginning you say okay these are the rules of the game this is going to be a genre piece or it's going to be literary or whatever you lay it right out so that, so there's an implicit set of rules for a story and you have to adhere to those rules or the reader goes what the hell where did that gun come from there's no mm -hmm. guns in this story right maybe what we're really talking about is constraint when, when we write a story only certain things can happen, and then that that sets a, a not a boilerplate, but like something's going to happen within a room, and we can't leave that room. Which is a lot like our lives, you know. We are trapped within ourselves, as it were, and all we can know, as far as a narrative, is what happens to us. Along those lines, I mean, what you're talking about here with all these rules are, you know, what they talk about way back in the day called the three unities: time, action, and character. Mm -hmm. The verities, and, you know. and or the verities, and you know, in in other works. I mean, in in French, I think it's the unities, but nevertheless, it's the same the same concepts, and that's what goes on with the the, the Roadrunner and Coyote. Is it takes place within a very short frame of time. There's one particular place, the Great American Southwest. It falls, you know, within those really narrow formal rules that one used to think should be done in all theater. I mean, Racine, the great French playwright, right followed all of those unities. And so we're saying that when there's a when there's a constriction like this, this really is natural to the human expression or is this natural to artifice? Well, human expression. <laughs> so we're, like all, the, we're all limited beings. We all have our own rules of, of what makes us who we are. What we're talking about, a lot of what we do is because we expect we're, uh, in one way or the other, trained to produce an effect. So I, I don't know if it's a metaphysical or more of that we are already, in one way or the other, conscious or unconsciously, creating a certain form to be read. Do you guys get frustrated with some stories that don't bother with any of these sorts of constraints? Well, there's the, there's the rub, Jim. Are there any stories... Is there any work of art that doesn't function within a set of constraints? Even if, even if the piece of art were to function without constraints, that would be the constraint within which it functioned. Are you talking about the third policeman by Flynn O'Brien? <laughs> yes, a matter of fact, I am. You know, 
Old Man Mathers, we know from the outset, who's being the narrator is the Selby, an amateur crackpot philosopher, has already started the main character, is dead. And he is in a two-dimensional hell. Of course, apparently it's satire. And, but we're, we know that in the first 40 words, what to expect. So you could put the book down and read no, no further than that. But it's up front. There are no surprises midway to the novel. It's set up within the two to three pages that you read that book. See, I don't think we're, we're surprised really with anything we come across, you know, e even if it is, it's, it's experimental literature or art or, 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 or music or drama or something within a very short period of time, the, the form of the thing makes itself available. So we understand what we're going to get. I think of when, uh, when Beckett's play waiting for Godot first appeared after world war two. You know, this was this was not done, where two people just stood on the stage, right, and nothing happened except for two people come along, and talk gibberish, which is essentially what happens in that play, right. But but you get the you can't miss getting the drill from very early on, so it's experimental, it's crazy, it's avant garde. You can say what you want, but it's following its own set of rules, is it not? Yeah, historical set of rules. Beckett brings his work in right after World War II, right? Mm -hmm. Every institution, everything that, you know, literature or everyone believed in had been one way or the other bombed or destroyed or transformed. Sure. Um, but, you know, someone like Beckett, he's, he's, he's also, I mean, he's been trained according to certain preoccupations he had about those sorts of three unities by all sorts of writers and dramatists in the first 25 years of the 20th century. He's, he's reading the plays, you know, by Jean Henri, uh, Giraudoux, uh, Paul Claudel, he's, he's, or, or Jean Cocteau, where, you know, time, place. Wow. You say Jean Cocteau and there's thunder. Jean <laughs> Cocteau. <laughs> was, was that the beast by any chance? No. Or is that the blood of the poet? But anyway. Um, <laughs> You know, I think when you, blood usually. when you think about a play or, you know, even a short film that Cocteau made, like The Blood of the Poet, Beckett looks at something like that and thinks, OK, well, we're just going to fracture that idea that there's even any sort of sense of a plot even further and make things even really bizarre. But I think, you know, when I look at some of these rules here, it seems to me that the one thing that we're going to talk about at some point is we're going to talk about voice. And that's the one thing that sort of is left out of all these rules. Did you guys notice that? That how it's articulated by the author doesn't really fit in here, does it? Well, mm -hmm. voice, voice is something specific as opposed to something generic. So voice is going to be defined by some limitations. And, well, I guess my question or thought is that voice, then we take these sorts of standard ways of arranging narratives and it's a voice that gives each one its own distinct character and its own distinct plot and its own distinct feel. I think a uh, writer's style is what produces voice, right? Is it a chicken and the egg yeah. thing? Or does voice produce style? I think it's your the style that you write in is what produces your voice. I agree. Yeah. And I yeah. think I think I think also to take that one step further is that style is a function of your limitations. Mm. That's an interesting way to way to look at it, right? Because usually we th we think of it the uh, the other 
way around. The style is, you know, you're magnificent. You can do anything you want, you know? Right. But in fact, as people, we, we can't really. And if you think of it in a practical way, you think of the, the Chuck Jones coming up with these rules for the Roadrunner. They, they knew what they could do in the animation studio. They knew what the what the art would look like because it, it always sort of looked within parameters, sort of similar, like Chuck Jones did the uh, um, Christmas guy that everybody likes, the Grinch, right? Grinch, Chuck right. Jones did the Grinch. He did. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if you look at the Grinch, it's it's kind of quite visually like the Roadrunner, except it's on a mountaintop and there's a dog with antlers tied to its head. But notice that it takes place in the same spot over a certain number of hours in one night. And there's one main action, which is stealing all the toys, but then giving them back. So it follows the Roadrunner's rules perfectly. Well, you know, you talk about uh, uh, style and limitations. What was it? A. E. Houseman who said that style is the man himself, I, that, which I take to, to mean that style is the thing ab about yourself that, that you can't disguise that comes out regardless, which is the thing that's you, that it's not anybody else. You have, your, you, have, you have your own world, a character. You as a person or a character, a fictional character, they have a worldview. They accept this, they reject that. They have, if not explicit, then implicit rules to their own behavior, their own understanding of the universe. And that's what I think enables you to draw an effective character is to give him those limitations or her those limitations and see how they function within that. So it's like, we're not really talking about like, like rules, like you have to put a comma before a coordinating conjunction that proceeds an independent clause or anything like yeah. that. We're talking about, we're, we're talking about can we come back that, that we can control the world that we're trying to put on the page. Right. You build a world, and that world is, has rules, and you, the writer, establish the rules. And everything has to function within that. Otherwise, the reader goes, and then, what the fuck, you know? But you're right. I mean, there is a whole other set of rules, more objective, like, which, we, which is a whole different thing, which is the rules of grammar, the rules of syntax, the rules of expressing yourself with clarity in the English language, right? To say that is that... Everybody who studies creative writing, the first thing they want to hear is that you can break the rules. The rules are meant to be broken. Who doesn't want to hear that? Oh, it's, it's everybody, man. Marvin Bell, the great Marvin Bell, the poet. Of course. You know, it, the, his centerpiece of teaching, and he's right, is that, yeah, there are all these rules, but you're supposed to break them. You know, that's that's what art is made of. Yeah, you, you know, but I think that everybody wants to hear that, and then they maybe can get away with not learning lots of things in writing well see i think that's the difference people want to excuse bad writing is consciously breaking rules that's not too well much. if if my story is so fabulous and interesting isn't that like the responsibility of the editor oh god i've heard that a million times <laughs> yeah i'm being sarcastic yeah right <laughs> i remember I, I did a workshop once i was in a workshop and i i don't know this uh student or person was up for discussion and inform the room that <clears throat> quote this will not reveal the gender <laughs> i'm just gonna hire a developmental editor people think that there's some kind of a conspiracy to keep us from being creative i think so what do you think i know that jim's stewing over there i can tell he's in an existential funk 
<laughs> no, 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 not at all. I'm, I'm listening and taking some notes. Um, I think one of the things that I was uh, considering is, you know, in our narrative forms, uh, we don't have anything like, for instance, a sonnet or a villanelle or even, you know, something like you would call blank verse that creates a set of limitations that you have to work with, work within, you know, both rhetorically, discursively. And I mean, if you're doing a narrative uh, in, in poetry, you know, it's, it's going to affect how you present the narrative as well. In prose narratives, there's a lot to be said for the idea that particularly in a short story, you're going to work in a very sort of confined set of parameters and uh, that's going to affect, you know, the types of characters you choose. That's going to affect the action. You're not going to want the action cluttered with you know, side stories and things like that. So my experience with my, um, my students, uh, community college students, um, creative writing and they would come in all gung ho about breaking the rules, but they were mostly genre. They wanted to write sci-fi or as the roadrunner rules, right? The more you're looking at the right popular fiction, I think more restrictions you have. I think so too. I, I also think that sometimes they want to break rules because they didn't write very well. And they want to call that, you know, break. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. All right. You can't break rules if you don't know what the rules are. Right. But the bad news I always give them is like, well, you want to break rules? Yeah. But the genre that you really want to write about has more rules you can ever imagine. So you That's better true. learn. Yeah. You better learn. <laughs> That's a really good point. True. I think the reader, the more the genre or the type of writing that they're reading, you know, crime fiction, sci-fi, there's a set of expectations that they're already expecting. And those become these, I guess, limiting rules to a certain extent, right? Right. Yep. I'm bummed by So what rules. about experimentation then? You know, I, I, I get, I get, I'm, I'm getting I hung up I, on poetry thinking about all this. You know, like like when, when I learned the rules, as it were, of poetry from Richard Kirkwood, Dick Kirkwood, and, and University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and this was a, uh, a man who, yes, he, he taught uh, <clears throat> English composition and every class he taught with frogs that he drew on a classroom wall. So he would, he would draw this weird frog with two eyes sticking out the top. It was like a circle with two kind of badly drawn eyes on the top. He would make tape recordings on a cassette recorder of Ribute, the frog coming into his office and asking about his paper. So the frog would come in and say like, Oh, Mr. Kirkwood. I'm working really hard on my five-paragraph essay. Can you give me some advice? And then Mr. Kirkwood would talk to you. So then he would come in and play this tape for the class. <laughs> you know, dude, dude was a serious whack job, but also a genius. You know, like for freshman composition, we read Shakespeare, we read The Tempest, we read Chaucer. You know, it was it was an amazing thing. And he he believed in in the the purity of the forms of poetry he, he taught us you know sonnets and villanelles and kershashudas and 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 ways to understand syllabics and rhyme and and rhythm and all this stuff and and when you think about poetry as something that's constructed you're writing a form a sonnet whatever you say about it or not it's controlled. There's only so many syllables that you can use in a line, and, and you have to rhyme. Even if you're going to cheat on the rhyme, 
you have to find a way to make it work as a slant rhyme an eye rhyme something like that you have to you have to come make something conform to the form even if you're trying to go outside of it at the same time and to me i like those restrictions i like that idea you know i i've i've, I've thought a lot about poetry that you you know you shouldn't for instance put a uh, conjunction on the end of a line you shouldn't break a line with an and or with a with a preposition or what have you yeah now what happens if you what happens if yet you don't want to put yet <laughs> on the end of a line yet <laughs> according to what i learned from richard kirkwood god rest his soul you know who was you know to me the most important teacher i ever had who quantified these things for me and yet yet and, and yet <laughs> line break (laughs) you know what happens when you let all that go are you still writing a poem that conforms to something or are you just uh whipping your pudding no 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 and this this was the question he always asked that was that was dick kirkwood didn't use those words whipping your pudding no no i think it was something you know making your blamage or whatever but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he did use serious man. He, was, he, he, he did use French words from time to time. He had a vocabulary. He was famous for only using like seven hundred words in his whole life. That's what he said. Pouffousay. Pouffousay. That's that's our that's our sound bite for the top of the show. So, yeah, Mike, I mean, it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess to, to, in today's context, right, we, if you speak of you know, the form of sonnets and villanelles and sistinas, et cetera, right, it's all restricts a, a writer's creativity. What's the historical context on that? I don't think they came at it because they were trying to restrict the form. I think they were trying to be more right in the form in which one can remember Oh, interesting. Interesting. By giving it a a kind of an iambic lilt or something, people are likely to be able to recite it, remember it, and recite it in an oral tradition. That's why why Shakespeare used the form. If you read any Shakespeare, it's iambic pentameter, but it falls into dactyls and it's spondies. But the the regular rhythm is always going to be iambic. Mm -hmm. But it's not consistently iambic because he would be an amateur if he did that. One of the things I always thought interesting is that fiction, or when you're writing something creatively, you're arguing a reality to your audience, if that makes any sense. It's almost like an argument that you're trying to convince them by the techniques that you're using that the world that you're creating exists. Exactly, and that the coyote can order things from Acme Company. That's right. Exactly. Do we doubt that? No, we don't. Never. It's no. a logical absurdity right. that a truck shows up with a box for Wiley Coyote, you know. But do we ever think <laughs> about that? No. No, because he would exactly shows up. It's the rule. And it was and it was Jeff Bezos who was sending him that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think that all this stuff that we're talking about form is is right on the money. I mean, this is like like we understand when we're learning how to write, hmm. maybe we don't think about those things that really what we need to do is we're trying to learn a, a bunch of parameters that we can where we know how we're doing it instead of winging it on inspiration alone you right. know we're telling ourselves a lie 
if we're thinking we can only go on inspiration, we're not going to use limitations. Uh, right. Inspiration is it's just isn't dependable. Yeah. I mean, inspiration is great, but inspiration works within parameters. Exactly. You okay. Know, you think though, for for our generation, truly, though those those Warner Brothers cartoons, that was really it. And no, that so was everything. My for my formative <laughs> years. I'll that. tell you, it's it's still funny too. This is a total side note, but have you ever seen the last episode of Flipper? Yeah. Do they kill yeah, him? Yeah. No. <laughs> Does he die? Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, yeah. With a torpedo, it's the best. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to run out of wine, so we're going to have to wrap it up. All right. Let's do it. What do you got? Anybody? My opinion, you have to know your shit. It takes a long time. When I was a chef or working as a cook all my life, the more experience you have, the more you learn, the trial and error, whatever it is, criticism, plates coming back and they say this veal parmesan sucked, it was burned, whatever it is. You got to get yourself in the mix. I don't know how you could really prepare someone. I remember when I was in culinary school and they were like, well, here are the rules to make, you know, you know, ragu. And you go out, you follow the rules and everyone set every fucking dish back. So I think the rules get you in the game. You, you know, what's going on. You understand it. But then when you go out there and apply them, you gotta be flexible enough to adjust. That's my opinion. I love that. Yeah, it goes back to what you're saying there, Marcello. Practice, 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 you know, totally. to develop a skill. Totally. So many authors, I think, I think they're above it all. But what you really are when you when you just boil it all down, you're a person with a great imagination and a good skill. And exactly. you can put that down on paper, and it's a skill like any other skill, playing guitar well, being, being able to sing. It's And you've got to practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And when you practice, you're learning more. the rules. As you practice, you learn the rules because you're learning the, what works and what doesn't work. Exactly. And I think really the rules. You're not thinking. Like you're honing your skills. You're honing your skills, and at the same time, you're learning the rules because you're learning what works and what doesn't work, or at least you should be. Right. I think like writing groups and workshops are rehearsals, but then you go out there, yeah. and I think a lot of the idea. I think the reaction, like, oh, you know, I'm going to break a rule. It's because a lot of people, maybe, well, some people learned the rules and didn't get the result they expected because they weren't flexible enough to understand is that mm -hmm. after you learn the rules and you apply them, then you still have an audience. You right. can still perform. Yeah, and, you know, and just knowing it happens. isn't going to make you a great writer. Yeah, shit happens, you know? Shit happens, happens, right. Shit happens is right. <laughs> there you go. Shit happens. That's our summary today. Who's got a limerick to sign us off? And so concludes another exciting episode of the Acme Writing Academy. This is Rick Grisman on behalf of Mike Magnuson, Jim Frank, Marcello Vasquez, and Bob Clark, thanking you for eavesdropping and inviting you to join us again at your earliest convenience. Safe travels and happy writing. Okay, that's a wrap. <laughs>